0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode
1: 117, The Paradox.
0: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting
1: Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Rick Rosenfield. He is the CMO and founder of Pearl Precision Surgery and the Pearl Surgery Center based in Portland, Oregon. We had a great discussion, which I'm sure you're going to really enjoy. Uh, Dr. Rosenfield talks about how he sort of flunked out of corporate medicine at Kaiser Permanente and then fell into an entrepreneurship venture where he started doing laparoscopic hysterectomies as an outpatient procedure, something that very few, if any, had been doing at that time. And since then, he's pretty much been a disruptive innovator in the space, helping employers and their employees find solutions for surgery, not only in Portland, Oregon, but all over the country. This is really, in many ways, a call to action for physicians to start working together and finding solutions around the big healthcare systems that rarely serve their patients or their physicians well. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from our sponsor, MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael L. Relvis is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own-occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians. We really like Michael and know he's got your best interest at heart when it comes to disability insurance. We know he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com slash insurance, or contact him at 1-800-817-4522. As always, you can go to com slash 117 for show notes to today's episode. There you can find links to articles we discuss in former episodes that relate to today's show. You can also find contact information for Dr. Rosenfield. He'd be thrilled to talk to you if you're a physician or someone else who's interested in starting a venture related to surgical services in surgery centers, or certainly to collaborate with him at Pearl Precision Surgery. Finally, thanks so much for listening to the show. And if you like it, make sure you subscribe in the subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. But make sure you pause the show right now and leave a written review of the show, preferably five star, but it helps others know what the show's about and what you like about it. And this helps people discern whether they want to listen to the show or not. But without further ado, Dr. Richard Rosenfield in Birthing a Business Through Hysterectomies. Enjoy. Hey there, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Rick Rosenfield, who is an OBGYN out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, Rick is the co-founder and CMO of Pearl Precision Surgery. He also has a role in Pearl's Women's Center and the Pearl Surgery Center. Definitely finding a theme there with the Pearls. (laughs) Dr. Rosenfield, thanks so much for joining the Paradox.
0: Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be on. Yeah, Pearl refers to the Pearl District, which is a part of downtown Portland. So it makes a little bit more sense for people that are familiar with uh, with Portland itself. And it's just a little area where we started our, our practice and kind of thought that Pearl worked well. So we decided to keep using it with some of our other endeavors.
1: It always made me think of like little old ladies, you know, they're always wearing their pearl, clutching their pearls and stuff. So it's good that there's, it's more to the region.
0: The the, the story was it was this warehouse district and and it was this little gem, you know, that nobody had really known about. And then it kind of grew into a little bit of an art district and then uh, became retail. I actually opened up one of the first medical facilities in that particular area back in 2005. But that's that's the story of, of why the pearl was the pearl
1: great well I brought you on because I'm real interested in a lot of what you're doing we always talk about disruptive innovative things here in the US healthcare system and I'd say you're doing something different and can oftentimes focus on national you know laws being passed or state laws but frankly the where the all the action really happens is is people who are finding ways around, to solve problems that people have today and it's generally not through the leg- legislative action. That's obviously an important aspect of things but it's one where it's probably harder to get exactly what you want That's and doesn't actually usually achieve what people want most of the time but we can do things that actually get people the product and the services they want the way they want it how they want it and for the cost they want. And so that's kind of where you come in. So why don't you describe, I guess, basically, let's go and start with your history, your OBGYN, you trained in the early 2000s, and then kind of how you got to your the Women's Center or the Surgery Center.
0: Yeah, sure. I, uh, I, I grew up in, in Ohio, actually, so I'm a Midwest kid. Uh, after being there for quite some time, uh, I went to uh, another Big Ten school. I saw you had a, uh, a Michigan State sweatshirt on. I, I actually went to University of Illinois. And okay. then I was back in my hometown, Cincinnati, for med school. Uh, right around that time, I decided it was time to to move out west. I spent a couple of years in New Mexico, in Albuquerque, my first couple of years of residency. And then I had an opportunity to move to California and, and focus my training at Stanford, and I jumped on it. So I came out of Stanford as a general OBGYN in 2000, and I moved to Portland at that point in time. I was being heavily recruited by Kaiser Permanente, and I took a job there As a general OBGYN, I tried. I really tried to make it. I realized (laughs) that uh, my personality and the Kaiser system were not very compatible. People talk about Kaiser kind of being like the Borg at Star Trek. You either assimilate or die. So after trying to make it work for a few years in the Kaiser system, I decided that it was time to go and I stepped out very scared and and uncertain what I was going to do. Historically in OBGYN, there weren't a lot of fellowships. Now now there's a lot more fellowship tracks, but right. typically the rule was you go out and you practice OBGYN for 20 years. And, and at that point in time, you put in enough hard work that you're given this opportunity to drop obstetrics and just focus on gynecology. So historically, the only people that were doing gyne only were people kind of in the twilight years of their career. That has totally shifted now. A lot, a lot more people are, are focusing now in the fellowship tracks, and there's several of those fellowships, whether it's infertility or high-risk OB. The fellowship that I participate in training now is minimally invasive gynecology, so a lot of minimally invasive work like laparoscopy. There's also female pelvic reconstruction surgery, which is urogyne, which we do a fair bit of that as well, and then, and then the oncology folks. So I, uh, I decided to step out and go into independent practice, uh, which I did. I found a warehouse in the Pearl District, downtown Portland, and I thought it might be a good idea for me to do something a bit unique. Uh, this is my first foray into kind of doing something a little bit disruptive, yeah. which was opening up a practice that wasn't attached to a hospital. And so I um, I found this warehouse, I signed a lease for way too much space, I didn't need it all I, as a solo <laughs> practitioner, and I was trying to figure out what to do about it. So. I had had this experience when I was in residency where I rotated through a surgery center and the doctors that were operating in this outpatient facility, they just seemed really happy. It was a very nice feel. You know, a lot of the stressors that happened in the hospital weren't, weren't happening there. And so I sort of filed that in the back of my head. And as I signed the lease and realized I had too much space, I thought, well, maybe, maybe I can build an operating room, you know, may, wh- why not? So right before I left Kaiser, I also had this idea that hysterectomies and really a lot of the surgeries that we were doing in, in OBGYN could be done outpatient. That patients didn't need to stay overnight because we were, we were programmed to keep our patients overnight. Right. We were programmed to think that you know the patient needs to be in the hospital. And I started asking these questions about well why? You know why do we need to do that if we're transitioning them to you know to, to oral food intake and and you know now of course with all our enhanced recovery protocols that at the time there you know there was no name for this but we were trying to do this we were trying to fast track patients to discharge and i thought that this you know could be done simply following the you know the general surgeons and what they had done with gallbladder surgery you know it used to right. be open they went to laparoscopic and then the patients started going home why can't we do that with gynecology patients so proof of concept really was while I was at Kaiser, you know, trying to get these patients home the same day. And, and I had a lot of success with that. Although the, you know, a lot of pushback from, uh, from mostly from the, the recovery room, you know, the nursing staff thinking that this was crazy, yeah. uh, but we realized that we could, that we could do it. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I'm like, you know, this is a post-op order that says discharge the patient. This is not a suggestion <laughs> box, you know? <laughs> so, so we started proving success and then, you know, parallel to that, I, I I left Kaiser. I opened up this office, and I brought in some consultants. You know that were in the surgery center space, and they said, "Yeah, you can't you can't build a surgery center here." And I said, "Well, well, why not?" No one could give me an answer. So, being the kind of crazy fool that I am, I started uh, <laughs> researching how do you build a surgery center. You know, going down all these rabbit holes about you know architecture and building codes and anesthesia. And it turns out I could build a surgery center there. Uh, it was just a painful experience and nobody wanted to get behind it because <laughs> my my business model was completely unproven. But fast forward six, eight months and I built a operating room and I had no idea at that point whether we were going to get certification from the state. They, they would not pre-certify the plans. They just right. gave us, they said, this is what you can do. And if you're successful with it, we will come in as the Department of Health and We'll get you a license and then you can try to get your Medicare certification. So we went through this process and, you know, fast forward a few months and I'm doing my first laparoscopic outpatient hysterectomy. And then I realized that everything that I was doing was publishable because nobody in the country was doing this stuff. So it allowed me to start getting some attention with white papers and presentations, and that kind of gave me this newfound passion, really, in minimally invasive surgery and technology. And I started becoming, I guess, a bit noticed in the local, regional, national, and then international community of surgeons. And I started getting invited to talk about, you know, outpatient surgery, and and we we started amassing a case series and it just built over the years and been very exciting because i've had many physicians come up to me over my last, you know, 18 20 years of surgery, really i guess 18 years since i opened up the pearl women's center pearl surgery center and people come up to me and they say, you know, you've had a significant impact on my career. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" you know. They said, <laughs> "Well, i read a paper or i listened to a lecture and and or i, I saw you give a talk at a national conference and and after that we decided to start sending our patients home the same day after these higher acuity gynecologic procedures. And, you know, they're like, it changed my life because they don't have to go round. They they get to spend more time with their families or right. whatever it might be. And then, you know, from the patient's perspective, they're going home. And then it really, really parlayed into the economic side of things. And that's where it gets really exciting, right? Is that you mentioned this whole thing about legislation, but I would actually say as a counterpoint that the Affordable Care Act, which was the single biggest piece of healthcare legislation, you know, since Medicare in the mid sixties, right? This is a huge yeah. deal. People don't realize that it rolled out over a decade. And then with, you know, when Trump was in office, nobody was really sure what was gonna happen. There were all these threats that we were gonna change healthcare. And now that Biden's back in, you know, we're like, okay, the Affordable Care Act is gonna stick around for a while. And, and part of that legislation is that we are now mandated to figure out a way to improve quality and do it for reduced cost, right? And, and then in addition to that, we want to improve the experience of the patient and the physician. That's the, the quadruple aim objective of the uh, Affordable Care Act. And so we can exploit that as innovative disruptive physicians and say, well, how can we achieve this and potentially do something that's meaningful for our colleagues at the same time? And I think you and I both have seen that moving into an ambulatory space, the surgery centers, is perhaps the single best thing we can do.
1: Yeah. There's so many things that have changed in medicine. And I, as we were talking off air before, I, I don't feel that old, but I've been around for now 16, going on 17 years in practice. And I don't remember this, but I had a general surgeon remind me, he said, you know, when I first met you and we were, we started doing laparoscopic cholecystectomies, gallbladders, as outpatients. And you came up to me and you said, that's crazy. There's no way you can do that. I thought, did I really say that? And I think, you know what? I probably did because I didn't do them in training. It it was something you never thought you could send a gallbladder home because they had so much pain or whatever. And now we just, you have the right cocktail ahead of time and the techniques are better and people do go home. I mean, now it's kind of weird keeping An appendix overnight or something, or like a a gallbladder, you'd actually are surprised that it takes more than like an hour and a half or something to do a gallbladder surgery, where before it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there and so it doesn't now. I'm not as surprised when we do things like this year we started doing total knees and sending them home same day. I mean, things that were totally unthinkable even five years ago, much less you know 20 uh, when I started. I think everyone was in house for like three or four days with a total knee, and now you know now it's it was at least overnight and you know now it's getting to the point where you're not around and it is and from a patient standpoint without a doubt is better being at home unless there's something special you're getting at the hospital and as you and i know there's really not much special you getting at the hospital except a really big bill um, that's true oh yeah right i mean physical therapy someone can come to your house occupational therapy someone can come to your house someone to wake you up every at night every 30 minutes to get your blood pressure well that doesn't happen at home so that's another real benefit for being not in the hospital, right? And so outside of getting IV pain medication, there's really not a whole lot that the hospital offers you for the mo- for the most part for lots of
0: except for lots those, of those except for those great meals right?
1: Right. Yeah. Which <laughs> the hospitals to the credit have done a ton to try and make that better because yeah, it yeah. was so bad. I, I mean, my standard joke is always, you know, no one comes here for our beds or our food. <laughs> so that's, yeah, tends to yeah. be true. So the and, the, and obviously just the convenience of surgery centers is, uh, you know, tremendous benefit to people. And so t- to your point with, with a uh, changing sort of how we, how for physicians look at things and patients with the surgery centers, uh, we're now go- entering an era where care is definitely shifting outside of hospitals. It, it was a beginning trend when you were talking about in the 2000s and even the 90s with surgery centers when they started first forming. But now it, you're moving all those things that don't need a, a hospital bed. You question why you're even in the hospital doing them, right? I mean, I think even patients are now starting to question that. So we're moving outside of the hospital. We're moving to surgery centers. And now we're going to be moving into, with high deductibles, people are looking for value, which uh, is not just value... Based, but what CMS says, but actually value to them, from because they're paying a lot of the bill, and so, and so, what are you doing there? And because I know that's one of your, that was one of the first focuses of your, uh, of what's it called, the pearls precision Precision, surgery, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, Mm -hmm. why don't you talk about what that is and what you're doing in that space to try and help that value? Yeah,
0: for sure. Well, it's an interesting, it's been an interesting journey for me. So, you know, we started doing these laparoscopic cases and and I'm going to focus a lot on hysterectomy because it's the second most common surgery done on women in the US, but we do a lot of other things. We do incontinence, repair, prolapse operations. I do fertility restoration, you know, fallopian tube reversal surgery, all kinds of other stuff like that. But a hysterectomy is a good one to look at because it sort of sets the stage for everything else. You know, first of all, the vast majority of these operations were being performed with open techniques for a very long time. We were a bit slow in the adoption because of the fact that there's so many general OBGYNs in the country. I think the American College of OBGYN has, you know, nearly 60,000 members. And if you look at the number of hysterectomies performed every year, which is somewhere in the ballpark of 600,000, and you just do some simple math, you know, divided by all those doctors, <laughs> yeah. the average number of surgeries that these generalists would be doing is like eight. You know, I mean, think about that, that, yeah. that you, you know, as an anesthesiologist, you guys are the ones that see most of this stuff, right? And if you have a surgeon that comes in the operating room that performs a procedure eight times a year, how would you think that their skill set to going to compare to someone that does eight a week?
1: This is, not, this is not the part where I tell you what we think of gynecologists in general uh, as surgeons, is it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh we'll, we'll, we'll save that for later. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what I think it goes to show, and, and we've seen this with NISQIPs and all these other you know endeavors, is that if you do something more frequently, you become more proficient at it. Sure. And so we realized that that was the case, and we started doing these hysterectomies. And interestingly, because of the fact that we were in the ambulatory center, we, we could do cash pay cases for less money than the hospital and for a brief period of time there was a big spike in the medical tourism community i think you were probably you know seeing this uh, back in the early 2000s where yeah people were going outside the country for plastic surgery or dental work you know and then what happened is some centers of excellence said, Hey, we might be able to do the same sort of thing. And, and the most famous one that you and I were speaking about before this podcast got started was the Oklahoma surgery center. They were the first center in the country to transparently publish prices, you know, and this was a huge deal to be able to say, Hey, you can come to this center and have a inguinal hernia repair for, you know, X amount of dollars. And that they could also show quality behind that. And so. That was a big, I'd say, facilitator in this particular space. And nobody was doing any high-volume GYN surgery back when we got started uh, in the surgery center. There was one location in uh, in Atlanta, another one in Dallas, where people were putting out some papers. And we got a, a bit of attention. And we got called by a group that was based out of Chicago at the time. And they were one of the early companies that were getting in front of large corporations and trying to find more cost-effective solutions for their employees. So there's something called an ERISA self-funded self plan. And, and most companies that have at least say 500 employees, at some point, somebody knocks on their door and says, hey, you know, you guys are doing this traditional insurance thing, but there may be a more cost-effective and higher quality solution for your employees. And I think you've done shows on like direct primary care, yeah. This is just a different way about it, where they'll come in and and say, there might be a way that we can help you find more cost effective solutions, excuse me, for your employees that need surgery. And so we were introduced to a company that was doing surgical benefits management for Target. Target was their first big client. And they did a trial in the Southeastern United States, I believe. And after a year, Target was like, this is great. We're saving money. Our, Our employees are happy. What else can we do and we started getting some of these patients not necessarily from target but from other companies as well that were encouraged to come to our location out in portland and we started Mm -hmm. performing surgery a lot of these patients were flying out and we this was kind of cool because we proved that patients could travel for surgery and that it wasn't a big risk so the program started it was a really we were just almost doing cash pay rates i had enough information after trying to get contracts with some of the big payers you know that i was forced to do surgery at the hospital and then do surgery at our surgery center to be able to show blue cross the difference you know like hey here's the eob (laughs) from the hospital and here's how much we can do this for it's going to be a 30 percent savings so we learned a lot i learned a lot about this stuff and i was able to figure out what a competitive price model would look like and could we take that model and basically say we're going to take the surgeon's fee the assistant fee pathology, anesthesia, and we're going to create a global episode, which has now become the term, you know, bundled and essentially push that out there and say, you can purchase a hysterectomy with our facility in Portland at a particular price point. That was the beginning of what is now pearl precision surgery. So. We started doing this for a while and um, after a couple of years i was contacted by one of the executives of the surgical benefits company and they said you know rick something's happening in portland we don't quite understand it but the feedback we're getting from patients is different than our other locations they had maybe two or three places that they were sending patients for gynecology care but something was happening in portland And I think really what it was is we decided to make it feel like a Nordstrom's experience for our patients. You know, you would walk into a beautiful office, there'd be somebody sitting behind, you know, more of a concierge desk as opposed to the traditional clipboard window type of deal. We would know their name, we would treat them with respect and dignity, and it was kind of a boutique experience. But then there was also the surgical approach and, you know, a variety of things that we were doing in the operating room, judicious judicious use of local anesthesia, you know, preemptive use of antiemetics, things that have, have now become standard. They weren't right. standard. Now they are. You know, even total IV anesthetic, you know, really just like running propofol mostly and staying away from inhaled gases can really reduce post-op nausea. We started learning all these things. And the reason we learned them is because we didn't have the ability to admit patients overnight. It just wasn't an option, right? right? So when it's not an option, you become pretty good at embracing the reality of your, you know, of your, of your current protocols. And so we got called and one of the folks said, listen, for every patient we're sending to Portland and they're having a great experience, we've got two or three that don't want to travel to the Pacific Northwest. Do you know anybody else that does what you do? And I said, well, I think I probably know everybody that does what I do because it's not a very big group of people, you know, Uh, and i have been, you know, becoming fairly, I guess, you know, well-known in my small circles, right. You know, you become, uh, you know, it's a micro fame in your space and so I immediately contacted one of my colleagues, a great guy named Hugo Rebo. Hopefully he'll listen to this podcast and and get a little nod from us here. He's in Cartersville, Georgia, so just north of Atlanta. And Hugo had been doing laparoscopic outpatient hysterectomies. And the reason I knew about him is that he was presenting papers in the same meetings that I was. And then there was another guy down in Dallas, part of Texas Health, and they, they had a really nice series of outpatient hysterectomies as well. So the logical thing for me to do was to reach out to these folks that I knew were doing good work. And say, hey, what do you think about me sending you some some cases, some patients? Is that something that would be uh, of interest to you? No (laughs) obligation. We're just going to send you cases. And uh, they loved it. So we created a business model out of it. And Pearl Precision Surgery was born. And what we then started doing was we tried to get a bit more sophisticated with how we could build these bundles and what we what we learned is that we needed to use the same language and Dewey Decimal system that everybody's familiar with in Medicare you can't really step outside that because that is the reference that everybody uses. Sure, Medicare sure. created the, you know, good, bad, or ugly, and there's a lot of ugly. Medicare created the pricing structure, you know, DRG-based in the hospital, APC-based in the, in the HOPD, you know, the outpatient hospital, and then in the ambulatory surgical space, it's ambulatory surgical center reimbursements. They were called groupers or CMS tiers. This was all stuff that was created already. So we had to use that system, but we also realized that that system... Was uh, terribly broken in gynecology, and the reason for that is that commercial payers pay hospitals a multiple of Medicare. You know, oftentimes up to three, four hundred percent, and in some cases quite a bit higher than that. Medicare patients don't usually have hysterectomies for benign reasons,
1: <laughs> yeah, right? Sure.
0: So if you make it to you know to sixty-five, you're you know you've probably been in menopause for fifteen years, and so. There wasn't really a lot of analytics that were done on the pricing structure that was assigned for our specialty because patients that were having hysterectomy, the hospitals were doing great. They don't pay tax and they get these big percentage multiples of Medicare. No big deal. As doctors started to transition into these ambulatory centers, what happened is the center started losing money on gynecology because the pricing that was set by Medicare was below cost. So it was a very challenging journey for us to figure this out. And that's why we needed to start building bundles. And when we started building bundles and, try to con- and, and trying to convince people that we had a value-based solution, we had to be able to provide proof of that. And the only way to provide real proof in healthcare is to do data mining. You know, you, you have to be able to find real data, real data, however you wanna say that word, uh, <laughs> to be able to show these guys, because a lot of the commercial payers they don't, it's it's scary, but they don't even know what they're spending on certain things because they're so busy with mergers and acquisitions and, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And you, know, you look at like United Healthcare, I mean, they're enormous and they've got subsidiary companies and all kinds of leadership. So do they really know what their claims are? They may not. What they might know is what their PPO contracts look like. So it took us a, a while to figure this out and to find the pathway to create a cost-effective solution in gynecology. We now have, I believe we're in 15 cities and growing. We mostly contract with surgery centers because they tend to be a bit more nimble with the value-based offering. And so that's, that's been very exciting for us. And we identify typically a high volume skilled gynecologist like, you know, like your friend, Dr. LeGrand up in Grand Rapids. And that's usually the point of entry into a facility or into a healthcare system. And um, with the way things have been in the last couple of years, I think a lot of big groups, even integrated health systems, are looking for solutions now to um, first of all have a value-based play, but also to increase the volume of referrals that are coming into their system. And one third of the U.S. population have benefits that are actually in this space, you know, in this self-funded space. And so it's really a, a very, very large population of patients that we're looking to serve. And Pearl Precision Surgery. Now, I think we've got about a million covered lives that have access to our plan. It's sometimes a little challenging to get the word out there. So, for example, you know, if you're a um, if you're a grocery clerk working for Albertsons and Safeway Grocery, you may not know that if you have surgery with me or one of my colleagues in our network, it's free. It's free. There's no copay and no deductible because it's a no network. The employer oftentimes picks that up because the savings are so significant to let them travel, pay for airfare, hotel, right. uh, and even cover the copay, it's it's so worth it for them. Uh, so that's been very exciting. And we've also found some really innovative ways to take on some risk ourselves. And so we are able to indemnify the surgery against complications, which is really cool. And that puts a little bit of responsibility on people like me and you, where you have to really assess the complexity of the case You're not going to indemnify, you know, a a patient with a body mass index of 50 who's got COPD (laughs) and has had multiple abdominal surgeries. You know, you know that there's a high probability of a problem there. But if you have a low risk 42 year old patient with heavy menstrual cycles, who's having a hysterectomy, and you know that this is a pretty low risk case, what we can do is we can essentially put a warranty on a surgery because it's very seldom that that warranty is going to get called just like on a car.
1: Yeah. So it's not
0: very expensive you know, the warranty is inexpensive. And it's these, you know, these situations that happen every once in a while. And so we, um, we can kind of give a guaranteed price to the payer, you know, the employer saying, look, here's the price point. And even if there's a complication, it's not going to cost you a dime more because we're building in complication coverage for that.
1: And that's something you just buy insurance for that as a, as a, System or whatever through the market, right? The yeah, that's a, that's right. There, yeah, there's right.
0: A, there's a couple of different companies that do this. The one that we found a relationship with is a group called Levitt Risk Partners, based out of Utah. But there's a, a brilliant guy named Reggie Schindler who created a company called Bliss Insurance, B L I S, and and they became part of Levitt after several years. And Reggie had this idea after being in the insurance space for a long time. And looking at the U.S. auto industry and how that developed over time, you know, what a, a while back, all of a sudden, all manufacturing was happening in Japan and, and and people were not, you know, they were buying German cars and Japanese cars. The U.S. auto manufacturers, you know, not too far from you, you know, Detroit, right, Motor Town. Well, how do we do this? How do we get uh, people to start buying American cars? And the answer was they had to build a better car. And so they built a better car and they said, well, now we can sell a warranty. And they made a lot of money on that because they knew the cars weren't going to break down so if we can provide better competency positions that have a very low complication rate you know in in theory we can reduce their medical malpractice insurance premiums and we can also indemnify the cases against complications and then if you look at the cost of surgical complications in the u.s which is 300 percent higher than the cost of surgery itself is the cost of the complications that occur and we can reduce that. Now we're really looking at a value-based play.
1: Yeah, I think when it comes to the insurance with people, most people don't understand if they're employed. Like you mentioned, a third of people are have insurance through their, their self-funded insurance through their employer, and that, and in many ways, it doesn't look any different to the to the employee. Because they're still – their processes are still – uh, are processed by Cigna or Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield because right. you pay them to the claims. And so it in many ways feels like Blue Cross, but it's not. It's the actual – the company's bearing a lot of those costs. They have stopgap um, insurance they purchase that they don't end up paying too much for someone if they get cancer or something like that and their costs run too high. But – um, all these things which are were, are packaged for smaller companies in a bundle by the insurance companies, but you can unbundle these essentially as, as large employers, right? And then you're, you're responsible for these specific costs, but you are also more cost-conscious. And it makes sense to suddenly say, well, the gallbladder costs $10,000 of the hospital in town, but if I fly you out to Oklahoma, you know, it's going to cost $3,500. I'll, I'll fly you first class there and back for you and right. your spouse, right? And a hotel. Yep. And I save... $2,500 or $3,000 or whatever. And it makes sense for me as a company to do those sorts of things. And so, which I don't know, I guess it's really kind of neat, but maybe it's also kind of depressing that it's that expensive and crazy <laughs> high costs in your, your locality, but, yeah, but those yeah. things will work themselves out. Right. I mean, I think right. the market will, when there's enough market pressure, you'll force players to either dissolve or they'll have to, or they'll have to adapt and, you know, to the situation.
0: Well, and that's the thing that's been so interesting. You know, you look at the, you know, being in private practice and, you know, being on the other side of the table for many, many years from these integrated health systems and and even, you know, the payers and and everybody that that physicians historically have loved to hate, you know. (laughs) But it's tough. You know, how do you compete when if you're in a small private practice in the United States and you're paying probably, you know, in the highest bracket of income tax, typically, or close to that. Sure. And your business is paying tax. You don't have that much of a market share. And so, when you negotiate a contract with with any of the Buca plans, you know, and we, for those that don't know what that means, it's you know Blue Cross, <laughs> United, Cigna, uh, et cetera, Aetna, Humana. And, and when you're negotiating with these folks, they look at the market share control that you have. They're not looking at your quality outcomes as much as we would love for that to happen. They don't really have the sophistication to do so. So in the Portland market, for example, if I worked at the largest group in town, I would get 30% more money in my professional work doing exactly what I'm doing right now. If I worked for the hospital, not only would I get that rate, but the hospital wouldn't be paying taxes on it. And they would be making more money from all the ancillary services through lab and imaging, et cetera. So it's a losing battle. There's no way to compete. And we just have to embrace that reality. So the way that we exist within that framework is we kind of look at the big, at the hospitals and, you know, they're the huge cruise ship and you're on a little jet ski. You know, we're nimble, but <laughs> you can't get too close, right? So
1: <laughs> that's good ideology, yeah
0: we can see when they're going to turn though. So right now, you know, with the Affordable Care Act and then even more so with COVID and everything else, it's like this big hard reset button's been set. And now there's this opportunity for those of us that are innovative and a bit disruptive, To kind of get out there and evangelize to our friends and say okay i used to go to a meeting and i'd say i'm going to draw an x and y axis and i want you to show me you know if the y axis is your income and the x axis is over time and without doing any more work what does that look like and everybody would draw the same slope that every year they were getting less and less money for the same amount of work and what's amazing <laughs> is these are the smartest people that we all knew back in grade school, you know, oh, that right. they, they became physicians. And it's gotten even harder to get into medical school now. You amass all this debt. So why is it that we can't come up with a better solution? And the solution is to say, okay, if there's a static or shrinking amount of money out there to pay for healthcare, and a potential growing population, but we now also realize that there's a lot of complications happening and you know some of my healthcare heroes one of them is Marty Macquarie, who you probably are familiar with and yeah. Marty wrote you know a book uh, that was a bestseller you know it talks a lot about extraneous costs in healthcare and mistakes that are made and you know I think it's the price we pay and but it it shows all of this waste it's really really unbelievable so we need to figure out a way then To save the money. And it's not really going to be the insurance companies and the hospitals because what they're going to do, unfortunately, is they're going to cut salaries. That's the easiest thing for them to do to reduce overhead. And unfortunately, the physicians that have spent many, many years focusing on healthcare and haven't spent much time reading business journals or learning about the economics of healthcare. They're the ones that are, that are getting crushed and it's really upsetting, you know, to see this happen. So I, I think this is where we have this really incredible opportunity now to kind of get some, some smart people together and say, well, what can we do to fix this? You know, wh- what's the option? People want to hear about it. And I think a lot of it really looks again at, at the data, creating registries of outcomes and being able to really show that there might be a better pathway to achieve higher quality in surgical care by following protocol. You know these protocols are proven, and we know that protocols perform better than humans when you know in in the middle of a situation. You know, if you are faced at a dire situation, you know that's why there's ACLS. You you know, just choosing a medicine that you think might work, you don't perform as well as the algorithm. And so we need to create those algorithms in healthcare. And and I think that that's you know what we're kind of heading toward, which is exciting.
1: As the landscape changes, you have physicians who are either fired or forced to sort of move out of the space they're in. There are a lot of people who are looking for opportunities and uh, are willing to, like you said, they're willing to to entertain ideas that they wouldn't have 10 years ago. And um, I think you're really starting to see that now when you, you people who are, who have established innovative systems like you have, and there are many others and they're willing to say, Hey, you know what? That might actually make sense. I see this in the direct primary care market where Mm -hmm. you had maybe a handful of people, 10, 12 years ago. And now, I think the growth is about 50% per year now in, in that space. I mean, it's amazing. Oh, well the primary care,
0: I mean, I I think the burnout in primary care is at the highest rate out of all the specialties.
1: Yeah. I mean, The number of patients
0: that they need to see per day, you know, to be able to make, to, to make a buck. Right. It's, it's just, it's, it's, uh, there's no way that these patients are feeling like they're being heard. You know, it's uh, looking at like five minutes of face-to-face time, maybe, you know, it's, it's awful.
1: The assembly line nature of primary care has uh, has really turned off so many people, and especially now that you have, just like with you, once you have a proof of concept, you've shown that something works, people are willing. To, there aren't that many people who are willing to just go in and do something for the first time, right? But there are the you know the late adopters, the the, right. you know, the middle adopters, and and once people show that it works, there are going to be people who are going to flood to these things because they say, hey, that's I you know I see someone who's working not half as hard, but they're they're working the way they want. They're seeing patients. They're taking the time to see the patients in, say, a primary care setting. Or now, I'm able to control the process as a surgeon or anesthesiologist in the surgery center, and I can have more control over my income and sort of my lifestyle. There's a, there's every reason why people would go into that and, and head towards that direction. But again, they ha- most people have to be shown that it actually can work. And so that's like someone like you, where you sort of stumbled into doing doing a surgery center. And I mean, I guess it's so surprising you didn't even run into certificate of need laws. they must not have those issues in Portland or
0: Oregon is not a CON state, which is nice. But yeah, some of some of the regions where we've wanted to expand into like the Northeast, there's a lot of and certificate of need is it's a tough one because you have to make a public statement, essentially, that you're looking to build a center. And uh, right. unfortunately, what ends up happening is the hospitals may catch wind of it and and try to to push these folks out from being able to to compete in those markets. It's it's a scary. It's scary out there.
1: Yeah. Not only do the hospitals catch word of it, but they tend to be on the boards and that are actually in the states that determine right. whether you're allowed to yeah. open a new center, yeah. right? So, it not surprisingly, if you have a bunch of MRIs and you want to maintain your market share, you're not going to be very happy or uh, enthusiastic to allow someone else to open up an MRI machine in your town. And the patchwork of CON, uh, I think it was the 1970s where it was, was decided, the federal government said, everyone has to have certificate of need laws in all the country. And then at some point, and I don't know if it was in the 80s, I can't remember, um, this previous episode of mine, I'll have to try and link to it here, but they got rid of these laws. They said the states, it's up to you to get rid of the laws as you want, because it turns out it actually didn't save money. They thought by limiting options, it would save money. Which only a centralized government could think that, right. that could possibly be be helpful to remove competition. Um, but anyway, but the states, because of vested interests, you know, they've removed them at various paces, and and so it's you know, Indiana, you can open a surgery center, but you maybe can't open an MRI, and Michigan, you can open, have an MRI, but you can't have a surgery center, or vice versa. Actually, I don't think yeah. Michigan have either of those. Uh, but like you know, hospital beds and all sorts of things, anything you'd imagine. There, there are lots of restrictions. But it just depends on the state you're in. So that's when well, that's, that's the thing I think challenge. a lot of
0: a lot of, a lot of your listeners probably don't recognize because I and, and very few of our colleagues do that. This is state by state. You know, yeah, it's really uh, it's an unfortunate reality for a lot of folks.
1: Yeah, it makes it it makes it challenging, especially when you want to expand to other places. Right. I mean, it's for a consulting service like you you've got. That's probably you're not really bound much by, um, you know, state borders, outside of if you want to try and actually establish centers or, you know, relationships. If you you had an insurance product, obviously it'd be various insurance boards in the different various states. I mean, it's, it is the advantage of having a federal system in the sense that you can experiment and have certain states where things work and then you can show other states. It is a disadvantage that if it does work, you can't just suddenly adopt it everywhere because, because the states have their own adoption uh, rates for whatever the things are. Uh, And so the natural next question is for your, for this precision surgery, you're developing these bundle payments in sort of a way of contracting with large employers and especially ones who are nationwide and directing people to the, to the centers that have provide high value surgeries. Are you moving outside of women's health at some point? Because it seems like it'd be a logical extension to say, well, we've shown a proof of concept again with hysterectomies, with your gynecologic things like incontinence surgeries. Boy, could we do the same thing for gallbladders or hernias or, you know, you know, E N T, you know, sinus surgery. Oh, there are all sorts of different things that you do. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, that's a it was a a great setup for the for the answer because uh, the, the answer is yes, absolutely. So, um, as a matter of fact, uh, what we decided to do w- once we started realizing that there was some traction and we had kind of proved the scalability, we we realized that we needed to automate a fair bit. So, we've been working with um, with Salesforce to create a, a customized HIPAA compliant portal where we can manage hundreds of of patients at a time even thousands if we needed to when a referral comes in through one of these self-insured companies or or anyone really but right now that's the main focus of our of where we're at but one of our clients actually has a federal plan so there's there's a lot of really exciting stuff happening in this space the records can be deposited through this salesforce backed software you know essentially where sure. If I was going to send a case to Dr. Legrand in Grand Rapids, he would log into the portal and be able to review the records and accept or deny the case. The patient would be able to log into the portal and see that the case has been accepted and where they're going to be going and kind of follow the whole thing all the way through to the bundled payment, you know, where the financial uh, transaction can occur between the employer, between our company, and then we distribute the, the payments to everybody. Naturally, what happened after we got started is some of the the care coordinators at these companies are like, wow, we really enjoy working with these guys because, you know, we pick up the phone and we talk to them and we we also review the cases naturally. You know, what's going to happen is if the case comes into our network, I'm going to be reviewing it or one of my colleagues is going to be reviewing it. And, And oftentimes, unfortunately, in gynecology, more than we would like, we review the case and we realize that either in some cases, the patient doesn't need surgery, which is a, you know, that's the. The most cost-effective surgery is the surgery that does not occur, <laughs> one of my good friends says. So if we can prevent the surgery, that's great. Sometimes we need to pivot on what the case is. You know, oftentimes a patient may have, you know, utero-vaginal prolapse, and their generalist thinks that the solution for that is removing the uterus when that is just really removing the presenting part of prolapse. You have to do some reconstructive surgery there. So we review the case, we decide what's going to happen, and then and we kind of decide where that's going to, where, where the patient's going to go. What's happened is sometimes these care coordinators, they have a female patient and they think it's a gynecologic problem, but it's actually a breast case. And so it allowed us to find colleagues. And oftentimes, you know, my colleagues that are really smart, that do great work in gynecology, they tend to hang out with surgeons that do great work in other specialties. And so we had originally started servicing some breast reconstructive cases, breast reductions. We got some inquiries for general surgery, so that was a natural progression for us, uh, gallbladders and hernias. We just uh, did our first couple of ortho cases came through our, our, uh, our network. We've had a couple of colorectal cases, and one of our most exciting programs is actually a comprehensive breast program in Houston. There is an incredible plastic surgeon based down in Houston named Sean Boutros, and Sean built a magnificent surgery center. They have a convalescent stay unit there and he does microscopic deep flaps so you know microsurgery for breast reconstruction and for women that have had like a tummy tuck you know they they've already sacrificed some of the superficial vessels so they can't do like a tram flap reconstruction the data that they provided in houston was that they could get what used to be a seven-day hospitalization then was published at five days and then three days, that they could get this down to 24 to 48 hours. They need to stay for a while, apparently, because there can be some microvascular issues that you know manifest soon, and, if, and that sure. would be an emergency. But truly unbelievable that his facility and as a surgeon, they were able to decrease the necessary stay, I believe, by 48 hours compared to Mayo Clinic. And, you know, of course, we all know that Mayo is one of the most innovative and and successful groups in the country when it comes to doing really amazing stuff. But no one would have thought that this small group down in Houston would be able to do something so meaningful. You know, being able to bring that program into our network was fantastic. We also have a relationship with a national group of bariatric surgeons that had created a, a network as well. And we figured, you know, if enough of us surgeons can get together and align on this, we can then have more say and more, you know, power in the market space rather than competing with each other. We should really be competing with the folks that have been making our lives a little bit more challenging. And, And I think that's where it really, you know, formats like this are wonderful. You can get some doctors to listen and say, oh, wait, we don't need to be competing with each other as much. Maybe we can unify kind of get behind this idea of um, looking at what does quality really mean, you know, how can we truly save money? Because it's funny that you interview doctors and they think that, oh, as much as it's important in the operating room, if the scrub tech opens a disposable piece of equipment, you know, like, oh, that was possibly a wasted $200. You really got to look at the room and say, do we need to be in this room? You know, could we be (laughs) in, in a different room? that doesn't have to absorb the overhead cost of the emergency room and the trauma and all those sorts of things.
1: Yeah. Well, and you know, to that point, there's, you're starting to see from an anesthesia standpoint, you're starting to see mobile anesthesia units where you're actually going to physicians offices and staying out of the, even the surgery centers, right? Because you can do procedures where you, do you need a sterile operating room to do certain lots of procedures? You're like, not really. We just need some sedation Mm -hmm. for 15 minutes and it's sure the throughput would sure be a lot simpler in this this location versus something else so i mean i think you're definitely seeing all kinds of different changes and that's really exciting this is um pretty neat stuff where's a good place for people to to follow you or if they want to get a hold of you and say hey i've got you know i want to be part of this network, or want to? Find oh yeah, out
0: yeah. Well, uh, I'd say LinkedIn's great under Richard. Richard Rosenfield. I you know building a really great network of people, and, and and just in within my network on LinkedIn are a lot of folks that are in this healthcare space and direct primary care things like that. So there's a lot of really good connections there. Um, emailing me directly. Uh, and uh, maybe we can, I don't know how we would do a link. I, I guess if there's I, a I digital version like... of this. Yeah, so it, my, <laughs> yeah. my email address, we can put on there for sure. We can talk about that. That's probably the easiest way to reach me is just to email me. I'm kind of glued to my smartphone most of the time. And then uh, social media is great. Uh, Pearl Precision Surgery has a website, which is just pearlprecisionsurgery.com. And uh, and then my email would be rrosenfield at precision surgery. And and I'm happy to take inquiries or talk to folks about this network. And it's very exciting. You know, we we love doing this and uh, you can probably tell I get pretty excited and animated about it. You know, it'll be very interesting to see how this develops over the next two to three years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, thanks so much, Dr. Rosenfield, for being on the show.
0: It's my pleasure. Yeah, great. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to Dr. Rosenfield. But before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situation. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at com slash MRinsurance.
0: Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Yeah.